This is The Monthly, a podcast presented by The Pad Project. I can't believe we're doing this. I know, I'm really excited. Hi, I'm Avery Siegel. And I'm Rahel Steinberg. And we are your co-hosts of The Monthly. This is a podcast presented by The Pad Project that talks about all things menstruation. And we are both really excited about breaking the taboo of menstruation and sort of stopping the stigma, bringing the conversation of menstruation out into the public. Okay, so I became involved with the PAD project. Um, You'll hear Melissa Burton talk about the group of students that she started the PAD project with. And I was one of those students who was in her English class. And she really taught me about this idea of period poverty and uh, menstrual inequalities. And she was one who inspired me to really want to make a change. Um, So when I was in ninth grade of high school, so I was about... 14 at the time I started attending Melissa's weekly lunch meetings and at the time that was just a school club but it turned into what is now the pad project and I have been involved the pad project ever since as well as the movie period end of sentence and I am now working as a staff member at the pad project and I recently launched the ambassador program the goal of the ambassador program was to create a space where people um, from all over the world could talk about menstruation together and who could learn from each other and do projects together and we have 29 different countries represented as of this first year so it's really cool to be able to talk to people from all corners of the world and hear about menstrual traditions in their lives and period poverty that they've grown up around. And so as Avery said, I'm currently an ambassador for the PAD project representing Hungary. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I got involved because I actually went to summer camp with one of the other co-founders of the PAD project, um, Sophie Ashheim. And so I just always followed her on Instagram ever since I met her. Once she got involved with the PAD project at school, she was posting a lot about it on social media. And that's sort of how I became aware of it and how I started learning about all these issues. And, you know, I found out what the pad project was and I followed them on social media. And so then I was pad project was really on my radar. Um, And so when I saw they were having ambassador applications, I sort of applied, just, I just went for it and I got in, which was awesome. (laughs) And so ever since then, and I was placed in um, Avery's advisory group ever since then. There's been no looking back. Although we had very different upbringings, we're both super passionate about period poverty and menstrual inequality. Rahel, tell me about your first period. How did that go for you? So I was in sixth grade. So I was 10 or 11 years old, maybe 11. It was early in the morning. I was getting ready for school. And, you know, I like went to the bathroom before I was about to leave for school. Like I was waiting for the school bus. And I looked down and I had gotten my period and I freaked out and I was like, oh my God, what is this? What do I do? So I called my mom in and I like, I was like, mom, what do I do? Um, And I like showed her what was happening and she was like, okay, don't worry. This is totally normal. And she gave me a pad and like showed me how to put it um, on my underwear. And she gave me an extra one to bring to school and told me to change it like halfway through the day. And then I got on the bus and I went to school and I didn't tell anyone. 
Hey, that's so funny that we haven't talked about this because I have literally the same exact story. No way. But you grew up in Budapest and I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, yeah, I was in sixth grade and I got my period before school one day. And I actually, a little different than yours, I thought, like, I didn't know really what it was. And I thought, like, I peed in my pants. I remember I was wearing pink underwear. So I was like, oh, maybe I just peed in my pants. And then I went to school and I was actually with Ruby Schiff, who's also one of the co-founders of the pad project and I was like she had already gotten her period at the time I was like Ruby what, what is this did I get my period and she helped me and then I went home and I told my mom that day but that's so funny that we haven't talked about that <laughs> we literally have the same story but it's so like nice that you had a friend there to help you I was too embarrassed to tell my friends because I think in my group of friends at the time I was one of the first ones to get it so we had never really talked about it before and we didn't really have like our health class yet I think you know like Mm -hmm. in biology they like split up the girls and the boys at one point that's also a huge issue that people need to we need to start changing because it should be everyone talking about all the different things and that's why periods are so stigmatized because it's taught at such a young age that that's a girl's problem and not a boy's problem also the two genders just don't really exist um so there's so many other issues no yeah exactly I think the first time that our whole class you know without getting split up learned about like anatomy in general was like junior or senior year through talking about periods with each other and really what was happening in the current moment of menstruation around the world we realized that all of the issues come back to the root of the problem which is the taboo associated with bleeding And so in order to really kick off this podcast and really dig into what the lack of menstrual education truly is, we wanted to talk to uh, our guests about their experience with period taboo and what they've seen in their fields of work. So we conducted a series of interviews um, from a variety of different voices around the world within the menstruation world as well that you will be hearing throughout this podcast episode. Um, And we got, I think we got a lot of really great and really different perspectives, but that also sort of share a common theme and, you know, really agreed with each other at certain points. First, you'll hear from Hindo Pessoa. He is from Sierra Leone and he is a lawyer by practice, but he's devoted his entire life to advocating for um, menstruators and he's done this through creating co-founding a nonprofit called Sierra Leone Rising and Sierra Leone Rising does a whole bunch of things but most importantly Sierra Leone Rising focuses on the education aspect of menstruation and um, they do so by teaching the kids in their communities about Um, STIs and menstruation and they have boys and girls and people of all genders obviously in these conversations so that it's not just something regarded as a girl's issue but rather a conversation between um, the youth and additionally they also have washable pad programs and um, these in these programs people of the community make washable pads and they can use them. They learn the sustainability aspect of using a product that you is not single use. 
And then they also are breaking the taboo, the taboo because they're able to make a living off of something like menstruation. Next, you'll hear from Bria Gadsden, who is the co-founder of Love Your Menses, a Boston-based organization that provides menstrual education, resources, mentorship for young people and adolescents who identify as Black or Brown, not only in the Boston area, but also nationally and globally. You'll hear from Melissa Burton, who is the original founder of the PAD project from the Oakwood School. Um, She's the teacher that Avery mentioned earlier, who held her weekly lunch meetings and um, that later developed into the PAD project as we know it today. Next, you'll hear from Dapika Rana. She is the global lead of program and outreach for the PAD project, and she's located in New Delhi, India. She's been working um, with similar organizations as the PAD project for years, but was recently onboarded by the PAD project. Next, we'll hear from Lynette Medley. She is the CEO and founder of No More Secrets Mind, Body, Spirit. Um, no More Secrets is the foundation behind hashtag Black Girls Bleeds, and it is located in Philadelphia. In 2012, the creation of this nonprofit allowed a space for people in her community to engage in crucial conversations about sexual identities and menstruation. She recently launched the first ever menstrual health hub called The Spot, and it is a place for people, specifically Black and Brown bodies, to come and have a place to relax, to get therapy, to learn, um, to educate themselves about STIs, about um, period poverty. And inside the hub, they also have a menstrual product closet, which is super exciting. And it is the first one to exist in the U.S. Finally, you'll hear from Sorel Cohen, who is the Director of Development, Marketing, and Communications for the PAD Project, and she is based in Los Angeles, California. Through talking to each other, we realized that a huge part of period poverty and um, period inequalities around the world is the concept of taboo. What we do is that we don't just do it with the gas because it's not about the guys who are already not about the menstruators. It's actually the main within the community to think that they should not talk about it, they should not discuss it. And we have actually in all of our um, menstrual health management education, we have been bringing boys together and also our uh, sewing team are mostly men. There are a lot of people who still don't get it. Um, and even those um, are employers. And there's a lot of women like myself who have to show up to work and suffer in silence or endure the pain because we have to make a living and we need to get paid. And and so that is what really made me realize that this is a, a national and, and global issue. I think when it comes to menstruation, um, you know, people always think about access to products, which is so important. And so that is what uh, really struck me um, from my experience, just having to take unpaid time off because of something I can't control. Uh, from that point on, I, I started, you know, doing more research into workplace um, policies and, and how workplaces can make their environments more equitable for people who experience reproductive health issues such as endometriosis, fibroids, polycystic ovarian syndrome, 
and so forth. While all the things that all of the fantastic organizations are doing, that is fighting um, extra taxes placed on period products, um, making sure that period products are accessible, um, all of those things are sort of um, solutions for an issue that is about patriarchy. So the, the stigma and the shame that is attached to menstruation is what is feeding all the injustices and lack of access for people to reach their full potential because they menstruate. I think the one thing that the world um, needs to sort of embrace is that menstruation is not a dirty thing. It's not a shameful thing. It's not a thing that needs to be hidden. And it's not a thing that menstruators should have to compensate for financially or by missing out on any of life's opportunities. So I think in terms of attitude and knowledge, uh, we still have a, you know, a long way to go, I would say, because uh, we are, uh, you know, are not doing a lot on when it comes to educating the women and girls. Just telling about menstrual health, but also talking about, you know, body changes and the reproductive health and maybe, uh, you know, including this in the curriculum, uh, you know, training the teachers, the health workers and talking with the parents. It's all linked. So by just making product available, uh it is uh, good that, you know, those women and girls who do not have access to those products is now having access, you know, to menstrual health product. But at the same time, a lot of education program needs to be done uh, to make it a holistic approach. I, I am intentional about trying to, you know, change that narrative now that it is a, you know, normal, natural part of life. But it just was like so robotic. This is what's wrong with you. This is what you need to do now. You're no longer a child. You have to take care of yourself a lot better. You have to clean yourself. It was just like all of the shaming and negative language. Nothing was really um, positive. So, and then I'm, I'm sharing my age. When I got mine, we still had the belt. So I got handed this little belt and these pads with these long flaps on the side. Uh, and my life just changed. And I just thought it was the worst thing ever. So although we had different upbringings, we... We're both fortunate enough to be educated about menstruation. And when we learned that so many different people are not fortunate enough to have the education, we want to take a deeper dive into what the conversations about menstruation and periods in general look like all around the world. We actually recently got a DM. We were talking about how um, we post something with the language, all people can bleed. And someone um, from, I think somewhere in the Midwest DM'd us back and said, can you please explain this? I don't understand. I don't understand how, if you're not a girl, how you can bleed. And so that was just a really cool moment where it's like, we have created this platform in which we can educate people and the education will lead to the destigmatization and the, all the other things that are come with it. But the education is the tool that we was missing for so long. Yeah, and in some ways you could argue, I mean, it's a chicken or egg thing, but but in some ways that education is the most important piece, the education and awareness, because from that everything follows. Yeah, and the hard thing too is that people don't always see education as the most important thing because 
you know, they say, oh, I'm bleeding now. I need a tampon or, or pad now. But the backwards way of looking at it or the more long-term way is the education will destigmatize it, which would allow for people to get pads and tampons in a better, more organized way. So, you know, I think with the pad project, we're kind of trying to do both because we're trying to tackle the immediate problems, but also the long-term effects. How can we make sure people are getting uh, the education that they need to understand, embrace, and love their menstrual cycles and know how to manage it? A lot of people are focusing on access to products, which is great, um, but how can we make sure that our efforts are sustainable and um, culturally competent and equitable? Um, the hub was... Uh intentionally created to be a hub of education awareness, uterine care, menstrual care, um, because we saw that period poverty wasn't a singular issue, it's a multidisciplinary issue. So by providing access to computers and a safe room and therapy and all that. But some of the other menstrual organizations where it falls short is that you're not really directly dealing with the menstruators. <laughs> you're going, you're not dealing with the menstruators, you're dealing with layers, you're dealing with businesses or structures or anything else, but I get that all the time. Well, I don't directly deal with the menstruators. Okay. So if you're not dealing directly with the menstruators, how do you really know what it is they want or need or desire? So I think that's one of the things that, that happens. And also the education piece is always key um, that needs to be added. And legislation, you know, pushing activism and advocacy around shifting legislation. Throughout having these conversations, we realized that something that was coming up the most was having an understanding of who's at the table, whether that be in activism spaces or uh, educational spaces. And we realized that without understanding the communities you're working with and without understanding who's there and who you're trying to help, it's really hard to actually effectively help people because it's one thing to give people products and to give people money, but without actually engaging with them and talking to them and asking them the questions about what they need and what they're, what would serve their community the best, the help you're giving wouldn't be as effective. I think it's crazy that people think that throwing money at a problem will fix it because it's, you know, it's 2021. There's obviously so many problems in the world that money can't fix and the only way that we can really move forward, um, especially in, in spaces like period poverty and menstrual poverty, there are, it's, which is so highly stigmatized, it's so essential that there is an aspect of understanding a community and the education aspect, because if people aren't learning and people aren't talking to each other, nothing's going to change. And no amount of money or no amount of product, if it's not explained how to use the product, is going to change that. The cycle is just going to keep continuing. When we were talking to Lynette, she told us about how so many people come to her and they say, I'm doing this, 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 and this, and nothing seems to work. What can I do to make more effective change? And the first thing she said that she asked them is, well, who's sitting at your table? Who is involved in these conversations? Because if there's a group of people who are so removed from an issue, who are trying to fix the issue, how are they supposed to know what the true issue is? And that is so true. And I think that's something that 
oftentimes when people have see a problem, they want to just jump on it. And it's important in order to make effective change to kind of step back and see where are the spaces where you can effectively do something. And also not just give up if something doesn't work, you know, keep going and keep making sure that the solution you're offering or the solution you're working towards is sustainable in terms of it's not going to fall apart after a year. I think it was Depika who told us that the PAD project is really effective because they don't just create a solution for a year and then say bye. They, you know, they go in for two, two, three years and sort of help the community, whatever community it may be to keep up a practical solution and um, like keep the funding going and keep the aid and the leadership going for a longer time. We hear a lot of stories and stories um, that really move me. Um, girls having to um, exchange sexual favors for a pad, um, girls being, um, and women and menstruators being uh, sequestered, um, hidden away in unsafe places, uh, suicides um, on account of period shaming, so, so actually the most important work that we do is to be able to get products to people um, so that they are not in danger or forced to have infections, miss school, sell their bodies, um, be hidden away because of a lack of period product. Um, so I live in a predominantly white uh, community, although I was raised in a predominantly Black community. Um, so I get to um, observe both um, worlds. Um, and so I would say in the predominantly white communities, parents usually have more resources. And so um, oftentimes I see if parents don't know how to talk to their child about menstruation, they'll buy a book or they will hire a, a wellness coach or a health educator um, to talk to help them talk to their child about menstruation. And so usually they have the financial capacity to pay for services or literature as a way of learning about menstruation and supporting their child um, while also paying for products. And so I'll see, you know, families, you know, buy um, period panties and pads and um, you know, different devices to help um, manage their period pain. And so they tend to have more financial resources. Um, and Black communities, I would say, yes, I do see that as well. I do see parents who are able to, you know, talk to their child, maybe purchase books or other resources. Um, but there's um, a lot of stigma, I think, you know, that is deep rooted in certain cultures. Um, and so different cultures have different beliefs about menstruation um, and, and how they choose to manage it. And so I think in you know predominantly black and brown communities, uh, it's a melting pot of different cultures. And so there's just different um, perspectives in terms of menstruation and not saying one culture is right and the other is wrong. It's just that there are different um, viewpoints. And so, it's, it could become more challenging to address the stigma when there's uh, so much diversity in terms of 
people's beliefs associated with menstruation. But I also think that's a beautiful thing just to bring different people to the table. Um, I love talking to uh, different groups of people and communities within the black and brown community because we're not a monolith and, and we're all unique in our own ways. Um, and, and so it's really interesting to hear their point of views about menstruation and uh, like, for example, there are some households that they don't use tampons, you know, they think um, that, that will promote uh, sexual activity. Um, and, and some uh, people believe that if you use a tampon that you're not a virgin anymore, and, and that's what they believe. And so they prefer pads. Um, and then there are other households where they use tampons and menstrual cups. And so it's different. Um, and I would say the same for, you know, suburban uh, and predominantly white towns as well. I think um, it's not so much of a, a, a racial disparity. It's more of like, it has to do with culture and and how a family, what what the mother was taught and what the grandmother was taught. Um, and, and I think that has a lot to do with people's perspectives about menstruation. Well, I guess it, I first found out about it from my own um, personal experiences. Uh, um, me and I do share that uh, her father is incarcerated um, with life without parole. So we went from a middle caste family into deep poverty within a week. So that was my own experience dealing with lack of menstrual um, access and not understanding that it wasn't something that was readily available, but it wasn't a name for it. So I kind of thought that that's what poor, happened to poor people. You just had to suffer. Uh, so I probably, I think, repressed all of that until having these conversations. And it was like, you ever have something that happens and it's like, that was me or oh my gosh. So I think that's why I'm so passionate. You know, um, I think our lived experiences drives our passion and our purpose. And um, I, I know what it is to be desperate. I know what it is to have to deal with systems. I know how it is to deal with institutions and, 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 and programs that are supposed to help, but are intentionally designed to keep you <laughs> um, from reaching your full potential. So I think when I heard the stories of these young people, I'm thinking, wow, okay, that was, okay, that's real. And I remember it. And I probably had repressed and suppressed all of this just to, you know, yeah, you, you we, we suppress so much negativity to move forward. And I think when it came up, I was like, now I'm in a position to help somebody or do something about it. So my personal experiences, and then when I saw it again, and in my mind, like, this isn't solved yet. Like, really, we're still dealing with this. Um, I think that's what it was from hearing people's stories, hearing their experiences, realizing my own and understanding that we really have to do something different. So at the pod project, what we do is we look at a community holistically, and we create a partnership. So most of our sites where we have programs they're partnered with a part with an organization that's based out of that location so that we are helping them maybe we're providing them materials maybe we're funding them maybe we're giving them some sort of educational packet but we are working with a member of the community um, who understands the cultural sensitivities who understands the needs more more so than we could ever um, from our little office in Los Angeles. And so an example of that is um, the work that Hindo does for his community in Boom Sierra Leone, the Washable Pod program is what works best. 
And so that's the program that we help them fund year after year. And it's been super successful. And Hindo now goes around to other places within Africa and teaches them how to create a washable pad program. So the goal of the pad project is to create partnerships and to, to fund machines that have a life beyond the initial purchase. But something else that came up in a lot of our interviews is also the lack of data um, because of a lack of research. So it's hard to know what certain communities need and you know what would be the best way to help them because there is such little data out there. So I think it's, um, you'll hear from some of our interviewees about how more data and more research could be more effective for helping different communities. One thing in this sector as a whole that's really challenging is collecting data and something that we're working on at the PAD project. COVID has really, uh, really hindered how our programs could have been set up because of obviously the pandemic. So there, there's been a lot of stops and starts pro, pro, projects are on hold. So um, one of the things that we're looking to work on in the future is collecting data to um, further understand and share out what's happening. But in the sector as a whole, menstrual health, there's very limited resources and education on what's actually happening. I think I totally agree what Sorel just said. And, you know, there's a lot of need for targeted research to, you know, to better understand the current state and, you know, the pressing need of the girls and the women, uh, you know, to improve the effectiveness of programming. So basically a research to understand various types of users, customizing programming appropriate to, you know, so like uh, what I love about Pad Project is, you know, we let our NGO decide based on the need of the community, you know, to design their program. And that is what I totally believe in, you know, instead of us telling everyone, you know, this is, uh, we are funding you for this particular program and this is what you are, we are expecting from you. What we do is we are giving them funding and we tell them, you know, according to the need of the community, you have to design your program. And I think this is something that is really important because every woman and girl have a different need when it comes to menstrual health management. They have, we all have different bodies. So a lot of research has been done, but it's, that covers a very small scale data, maybe with 100 women, maybe with 1,000 women. But uh, So what I feel is, you know, a lot of research is uh, required to be done in the sector. Specifically for the U.S., um, we've seen so many other countries like Scotland and Germany and New Zealand um, ban the period tax and um, work to create more spaces that are um, less gendered. But the U.S. is so far behind and it's so upsetting to see that. And I think in so many ways, people see the U.S. as like this great grand place. And, you know, in some ways it is, but there's still so much work to be done that we cannot forget about. Yeah, and a great example of that is something we talked about with Melissa is the fact that the U the U.S. hasn't ratified CEDAW, which is the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. And that just shows, you know, how sort of backwards the thinking can be in the U.S. And the U.S. hasn't signed it because they think they don't need it. They think that the U.S. isn't in a place where they need to sign something like that, but that's just so far from true. And the conversations that we've had um, with our 
interviewees and the conversations that both of us have had in our everyday lives proves that we have so much work to do and that by signing CEDAW, maybe some things would change and maybe um, we would see more permanent change in the U.S. Yeah, and I think it would just start to bring about an attitude change. It would start to bring about like an attitude change in the U.S. for finally, you know, starting to step over that hurdle of we do have discrimination here and we do have period poverty and we do have menstrual inequity. It's not just something that happens in faraway lands and something that we should feel so removed from because we're not and it happens here on a daily basis. In some ways, the United States is so far ahead in terms of um, wanting to make sure all these very good things and important things are true, that the language that we don't say women and girls, that we say menstruators because uh, all people menstruate and we wanna be trans inclusive and we leap so far in one direction, which is a good and excellent direction and we should at the same time, we're ignorant, I'm talking about the United States, we're largely ignorant to the real poverty that is existing in the United States where people are using you know, old socks for pads. People are on the streets, they don't have product. And this is super important that we're all working toward the same goal of making sure that people can menstruate safely, with dignity, without prejudice, whatever that means for the community. Six UN member states that have not ratified uh, the convention are Iran, Palau, Somalia, Sudan, Tonga, and the US. That's and crazy. The Vatican. Yeah. Which is crazy, the fact that the US doesn't feel that they need that. It doesn't make any sense. No, and the US's voice um, in ratifying CEDAW would be huge for the UN and for conferences. Um, and it's, it's motivated by money. It frees corporations or other people from being sued in effect. Because if we haven't adopted it, then we don't have to hold to it and we don't have to abide by it. And so it's sort of a money saver. And so, so the US is like, well, you know, there's no real incentive for us to ratify this. I feel like that just sends just this awful message that the US and just all these countries that haven't ratified it or signed it, just, um, you know, they're saying, oh, for us, this money and not getting sued and not having to deal with it is more important than actually protecting women and actually protecting people that are like basically in danger. It's really ridiculous. It's just really uh, disheartening and sad, but hopefully with the change that's happening, you know, through organizations like the PAD project, things like CEDAW will be um, signed in the near future because it's been brought to the attention of the government that, you know, the U.S. citizens won't tolerate any of this. And so I think the next five years will be super important and super I think it will really like change the way that the next century of people like really live and interact with each other. I think um, 
of course, people are looking at the areas who have basically started making change, like, you know, Switzerland and the UK. Um, I think the United States is so far behind everybody, um, so very far behind. And I think that a lot of the people who they are listening to in the United States are don't really understand the concept of period. I think we have these conversations about menstrual equity and then period poverty. And of course, menstrual equity means equitable, making sure that everybody can have access to it. But when you hear that word, so many people kind of think of access in bathrooms and access in buildings and you know even the tampon tax and different things like that. That doesn't affect period poverty. People in period, true period poverty, the tax isn't going to affect it. You're being in the bathrooms isn't going to help them out. It's more like a, 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 a more expansive need for these communities. And even though, and I, for some reason in the United States, they keep taking off what period poverty is about waste management, water, all that. They kind of keep thinking it's an international issue where all these are issues still with our communities. So I don't know if this really a comprehensive voice in the United States really talking about it to push what needs to be done. There's so many different issues that are happening and just within here in the U.S. and the U.S. needs to do a better job of facing these issues head on. Luckily there have been some some positive steps recently not just in the U.S. but also around the world um, and we talked a little bit in our interviews about some recent changes that have been going on and some some positive steps that have been taken yes so one that you know there has been an increased momentum from donors from government and from the private sector to address menstrual health issues i think all over the world not just in india you know a lot of uh, corporates are interested you know to talk about menstrual health programs uh, the focus to date has largely been on products and you know um, to make products available and recently a lot of organization has started you know to improve awareness especially among girls but still um, you know I think we are lacking the uh, you know you know educating girl before she gets the period uh, so the one thing which I have seen you know a lot of uh, donors government and private sector are interested in menstrual health uh, programs to address uh, the problem. Thanks, Topeka. That's a, a, a different take that I would have answered. So it's nice, nice to hear your response. You. To me, I think that the biggest change by far is I know several, you know, many years ago, um, the first time periods was even mentioned in advertising was you know in the early '90s, and now I see it in every single TV show I watch. It's everywhere and, and not just because I work for the pad project but like my eyes are open like I see it everywhere on tv and on social media like it's literally like I like see periods everywhere like it's not going away and I think that openness is a really big shift and I think so too the film period and the sentence brought awareness to a whole different audience and got people talking about menstruation and pushed forward the work of all of the advocates who've been working before to get in the conversation. And now I see, you know, with my Google alerts, I see articles in mainstream media every single day, everywhere, talking about the issues of menstruation. Even yesterday, Apple, I mean, one of the biggest companies, Apple, is including menstrual health in their health tracker. So that I think that's a really big step forward. It has changed a lot. And um, 
nowadays they they are always open platforms for those kind of conversation they are not kind of uh, strong restrictions like in the past um you talk about that it's like they can find you in certain rural communities but it's not open it's an open conversation there are so many groups rising and uh, doing a lot of work in that area so there's not an open platform and uh, it's not a hundred percent but there's that open platform now and conversations are going on there's acceptance for it during our interviews we asked all of our interviewees what they hope to see in the world of menstruation in the next decade and what we found was that a lot of them just want basic needs met. They want education um, being at the forefront of people's minds, whether that be about sexual health, menstruation, STIs, all of that. And the other ask is to have everywhere in the U.S. that has free lunches should have free menstrual products as well, because the people who can't afford lunches can also not afford menstrual products. And Lynette brought that up. And I think that's really stuck with me ever since our interview, because I thought about that. And I think there's so many schools that are putting pads and tampons in their bathrooms, but it needs to be at every school and it needs to be for free. In this current moment, so many people are so concerned with the environment and environmental solutions that are more sustainable. And while that is important, it's also essential that in a space that's so taboo, we start with the most basic thing. And the long-term goal might be more sustainable solutions like a washable pad or a menstrual cup or a menstrual disc or sea sponge or whatever that option for you might be. But what needs to happen today and in the near future is the initial step towards change, which starts with education. And it starts with breaking the taboo and switching the conversation of menstruation from private to public. And that can happen just in your own house. You can start that by talking to your parents, talking to your siblings, talking to your grandparents, your aunts and uncles about these topics, because in so many homes around the world and around the U.S., these conversations aren't even had within the home. And so that needs to change before we can tackle the other issues that are coming along with the menstrual poverty and the lack of education. I think Topeka said, take baby steps and just start start small and it will lead to something big. And I think that's a great sentiment that, you know, you can start small now at home in your house, in your, in your community, and it will grow into something big. I would say to be brave, be unafraid. Don't be worried about getting it wrong. You'll surely get it wrong. Uh, Lord knows we got it wrong and we'll probably continue to get, make wrong steps. That's okay. Um, if you know that the uh, core of your mission and your belief, which is presumably um, to end period poverty and break the stigma, that is a noble and worthwhile goal. So don't be afraid of whatever, you know, mishaps, criticisms along the way, because that can just paralyze you and stop and if you take all that in too much, you'll be scared to make a move. And eventually, I think we all just sort of have to go for it and know that we're, we're, we're moving towards something that is worthwhile and important. And we're going to take learnings and we're going to try and do better 
but it's okay if there, you know, are mistakes along the way, because that's inevitable. I think every little bit helps, you know, even if it's asking community members or kind of no families who might, the same families that need food, <laughs> the same families you guys do the Christmas drive for every year, the same families you do the Thanksgiving for, hey, here go some toiletries and stuff. It's the same families. It's just that we don't talk about it. So you can do community efforts, you know, you can do um, drives, you can do writing to legislators like, hey, why isn't it part of Medicaid, Medicare, SNAPWIC? You know, anything, whatever your passion is that you know that you can do and it, it works well um, for you, I think that's what matters. I don't think any of us are going to change the world overnight, but every small step makes a difference. And I think once we realize that, then we can all collaboratively work together and make changes. But when we intentionally isolate a certain population or person from doing what they need to do in their community, that's where we cause issues. So I think overall, just uplifting one another, sharing our knowledge, sharing our voice, sharing our information, and allowing the voices of the people who would never have the opportunity to sit at these tables to really be amplified. Because I always tell people, I don't have to give a voice to the community. I'm not giving a voice. They have voices. They just aren't able to sit at these tables. So I'm trying to amplify their voices so that um, basically change takes place. I would tell them to really uplift and support local community leaders. That would be my call to action is, is to really take a different approach into community-based work and um, really have the community lead the conversation. Don't just invite them to the table, but have them set the agenda and, and lead the conversation. Uh, one thing I will tell them is that um, we may have a lot of potentials all over the world, and that one of the things that would actually bring that confidence to bring a lot of key players, especially women, is actually to ensure collaborative efforts that they are part of society, whatever challenge that they experience, it is our responsibility as men and women, and even in lower communities where women are being discriminated, cultural and other things, to actually work hard for them, bring them the understanding that they, they are part of society, decision-making, and they have a lot of potential, and it will get better for everybody if that space is created. And one way is to actually ensure the provision of sanitary parts and also the accessibility and breaking the stigma and taboo of administration. The biggest opportunity is to put this on your radar. So my um, call to action would be to support these organizations and to support our work to keep expanding. Um, and growing organizations. So uh, one is for my listeners, uh, those who are listening to the podcast, that let's normalize periods. Let's talk about periods. Let's take a baby step, I would say. I, I'm not going to say, you know, do this or do that. I'm, I'm, I would say take baby steps, you know, talk to your friend, talk to your family. If you are going to a shop and, you know, you're a uh, shopkeeper is wrapping up the pad and you know in India that happens a lot they wrap up the uh, product in a black poly bag so take steps and to normalize it the other message is that you know uh, for all the partners who are working in this space uh, collaborate uh, do partnerships uh, learn from each other and try to reach out more women and girls you know to make 
uh, you know menstrual health manage uh, management um, you know accessible affordable and and easy for everyone additionally it's important to not reinvent the wheel there's so many amazing organizations not only the pad project but love your menses sierra leone rising and no more secrets as well as millions more that are doing similar work and there are organizations like this in every community and reach out to those organizations ask how you can help ask what their specific needs are or if there isn't make your own and you know go start going to local shelters and bring your ideas to your community because there's room for all of our ideas and there's room there's so much room for growth in this area that um the possibilities are endless yeah i think bria also said similar use what you're passionate about creating an art show singing a song doing a play whatever just use what you're passionate about because that's what's going to get you the furthest because you're going to actually be excited about doing it and you're going to you know love doing it and it's going to lead somewhere great um and I also really like something that Melissa said. She said, just be brave. Just go for it. You're going to fail. Doesn't matter. Keep going. Because, you know, if you don't fail, you're never going to improve. You're never going to get anywhere. Thank you so much for listening to The Monthly. This podcast was presented by The Pad Project. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe for our following episodes. And check out thepadproject.org to find more information. <laughs>